What's up, Kyra? So good to be with you. I'm going to wear my mask for just a second while I've got our awesome volunteers who are helping me uh, set some things up for the sermon tonight. Let's just go ahead and give them a round of applause. They're amazing. They're wearing some new Kairos merch. You got to love that. Uh, I want to say hi to those of you who are here in this space. My name is Danny Householder. I'm the campus pastor at Hope Ames. Get to be a part of Kairos too. Hello to those of you who are on the floor, in the balcony. Hello to our friends who are joining us in Iowa City. We're so glad that you're here as well. Um, and in case you're looking for an update, the Iowa State women are tied 75-75 at the end of regulation. Congratulations to the Hawkeyes. They won their game last night. We're so very happy for you. But anyway, uh, let's be praying. You know, let's just give up a good word to the Lord to uh, help us defeat the enemy. That's not the point of the sermon tonight. We're already in the fifth week of our Jesus Went series. In this series, we are following Jesus throughout the journey of his life and on the way to the cross so that we can learn more about his heart, his purpose, and his desires for us as people. Jesus has a big heart for lost people. You heard about this in the reading today. Jesus cares about things in people that are lost. Think about it. Jesus, he's God, right? So he's got all these capabilities. He's got immense power, immeasurable strength. But his focus, his laser focus, seems to be on lost people. We know this because when Jesus wanted to prove a point, he would oftentimes tell a parable. A parable is a short story that proves a point. And so when he wanted to prove a point, he would tell a parable. One story for one point. But when he talks about lostness, he tells three parables, three separate stories. It's as if Jesus tells one story. He says, ah, you're not getting the full picture. So he tells another one. Ah, you're still not getting the full picture. Then he tells another long story. I want you to know this, Jesus is communicating to us through these stories. I care about lost people. Jesus loves lost people. Jesus is passionate about lost people. Jesus is even defensive over lost people. Take a look at this at the beginning of Luke chapter 15. It gives us the context of where Jesus is and who is around him when he's telling these stories. It says that tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. Tax collectors were hated. They were considered traitors um, among the Jewish people back then, Jesus' group and community of people that he was in. Notorious sinners, they would come and they'd listen to Jesus as well. And this made the Pharisees and the religious teachers of law, the Pharisees, is a really easy way. If you're ever like, what is a Pharisee? Just think of this. They're not fair, you see. They're really mean people. Store that one away, all right, and impress somebody later on. You know, I learned what a Pharisee is tonight. A Pharisee is someone who's not fair, you see, because they had this thought about the law was simply something that, uh, the law was a ladder that you would climb to get to God. And in their opinion, they were climbing that ladder pretty well. But the tax collectors and the notorious sinners, no, they were just lost down on the ground. They would complain that Jesus was associating with sinful people. They were upset that Jesus was eating meals with people, the text tells us. Now, I don't think that Jesus was a very offendable person, but he is defensive over these people. He will have none of the condescension that the Pharisees have over lost people. And so Jesus goes on immediately to tell a story, to explain, why do I care so much about lost people? To these people who are condescending. On one side, he's got the Pharisees, the religious teachers of the law, the condescending people, the people who believe they are found. And on the other side, in the audience that he's speaking to, he's got the notorious sinners, the tax collectors, the people who are saying, I don't even know where I am. Am I lost? I, I couldn't even tell you if I'm lost. That's how lost I am. This is the group that Jesus is talking to. And when he senses the condescension from one side to the other, he gets defensive over the lost people. 
He goes into quick stories. First off, he tells us about the story of a lost sheep. He says that there's this shepherd who has a hundred sheep and the shepherd loses just one of them. And then Jesus asks this question, which is a very peculiar question on the next slide. What he says is he says, won't, there, won't the shepherd, won't he leave 99 others in the wilderness and go search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Won't he do that? And then he goes on to say, once this sheep is found, there will be a great party thrown for the one lost sheep. Maybe people aren't getting it quite yet. So he goes on, he tells the story about a lost coin. He re-emphasizes this point. There's a woman, she has 10 coins. She loses one coin and she turns over her entire house just to find this one coin again. Won't she light a lamp and sweep the entire house and search it carefully until she finds it? Jesus asks. And then Jesus concludes the story by saying, I tell you this about the celebration that happens in heaven on the next slide, what it says, as Jesus concludes these stories, we got the next slide coming, I just believe it. Yes, ask and you will receive, Jesus says. In the same way, there is joy in the presence of God's angels, even when one sinner repents. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is God in the flesh telling stories, right? And so I think that it's easy for us to look back on these stories that were told 2,000 years ago and say, well, Jesus is saying it, so I can't question it. I can't ask follow-up questions to say, are, are you serious about that? But I mean, put yourself in the audience that day. You're telling me this shepherd has 99 other sheep and he leaves them to find one? You're telling me this woman has nine coins and she's caught up over one. Just invest the other nine. You'll get a way bigger return than one coin. Why? Why would you do that? The Pharisees, they certainly can't understand. Why would God waste his time over one lost sheep? Jesus seems to be very emphatic about it. He says, all of heaven celebrates when you come home, when you're found, there's a celebration among angels for you. The Pharisees can't understand it, but have you ever lost something? When was the last time that you lost something? One of the worst times in my life that I lost something was the very, very end of college. I woke up the morning of our graduation ceremony and I realized something, I couldn't find my keys. That was a problem because I needed my car keys to get in my car after graduation to drive three hours to my job for the summer. So of course I needed my keys and so I started to think, what did I do last night? Let me just tell you this, the time to lose your keys is not the night before graduation. Now I wasn't up to necessarily anything bad or illegal and something I couldn't tell you about. I'll tell you what I was doing, right? So my family came into town. I had some extended family who had never been to the campus before. So I give them a tour of the entire campus of Wartburg College. I'm like, okay, so that narrows it down where my keys could be. Uh, any building on campus, okay, okay. But that wasn't it, right? Then we went out to dinner. I said goodbye to my family, my friends and I. We loved to longboard. So we longboarded across the entire city of Waverly after that. And then to top that off, we jumped in the river at one point in the night. I don't know why. Memories, man, you know. You'll know what happens when you're about to graduate. You're just going to get real emotional, I promise. And then we come back to campus and we had this goal. We're like, let's get on the roof of every single building across Campus Mall. And so we did. So in my mind, I'm like, this is not good. Basically, my keys could be anywhere across campus, anywhere in the city, somewhere at the bottom of the river, or on top of some building. Yikes! 
My parents, they eventually find me that day. We're having a conversation. And we're like, you seem really distracted. And he goes, I, I can't find my keys. As soon as I say I can't find my keys, everybody understands this is a huge problem. You need to find your keys. Isn't it amazing that when something's lost, your focus just draws to that thing? Like you can't take your eyes, you can't take your mind, you can't take your heart over the thing that's lost. It doesn't matter what else you have. It doesn't matter what else is coming your way. I was getting a diploma that day. I didn't care. I needed my car keys. I developed a really awesome relationship with the college president and I ran into him before the ceremony. He goes, how are you doing? I'm like, President Colson, honestly, I'm like really stressed. I can't find my car keys. And this man who has a lot to do that day, he stops in his tracks. He goes, oh no, this is not okay. This is not okay. We got to find these keys. And so he starts asking me, where did you have them last? Where did you have them? Where did you go? Isn't that the interesting thing when you lose something? People start talking to you like you are entirely mindless. Like, all right, so where was the last place you were when you had that item? If I knew, I wouldn't be looking. Like, is it in your hand? No, it's not in my hand. Except for when you're wearing the glasses and you're like, oh, they're on my head, you know. But we go into the graduation ceremony. I don't remember a thing from the entire ceremony. The only thing that I vaguely remember is walking across the stage after the president has called my name. I look at him. He looks at me and goes, keys? Nothing. We get done. We go out. I'm taking pictures with my family. But between pictures, we're looking everywhere. Like, where could these car keys be? This is supposed to be an important day. I kid you not, in full ceremonial garb, I see the president of the college looking in the bushes. I can't find them. My track coach comes up to me. He says, hey, how you doing, man? I'm like, I can't find my keys. He goes, I'll go check the locker. I'm like, that's like the one place I didn't go. They might be there anyway. We get back to my house. My parents turn over the entire house. My sister starts questioning me like she's a detective. Where were you last night? And just at that moment, it hit me. There's one place I didn't think of. At some point in the day before, I had gone over to my neighbor's house into their bathroom to shave my friend's head. I don't know why he wanted that. And I remembered the keys might have fallen in the sink. And as soon as I remember that, I sprint out the door, I go outside, and at that very moment, my neighbor, Kyle, he sprints out his door, he's got my keys in his hand, and we're both like, keys! It was amazing, and we celebrated. Isn't it incredible? I tell you that story to tell you this. Isn't it incredible that when we lose something, it does not matter what we have. Those things are already in their place. They're secure. They're fine. Our attention is drawn to what we've lost. And nothing else can happen until we've found it. Jesus is telling us through this story, his focus is on lost people. It's not that God doesn't care or love people once they're already with him. No, of course he cares and loves for them. But they're secure. They're safe. They're where they belong. They are home. But God is laser-focused laser-focused on lost people. So Jesus is trying to prove a point here. The Pharisees, they can't wrap their minds around this. I know I've been talking a lot about, you know, okay, like lost and found and lost and found. And those are kind of church terms that sometimes we throw around carelessly. It's like, okay, well, what does it really mean to be lost? What does it really mean to be found? And those are questions that beg an answer. And I think the reason why Jesus then goes into yet a third story 
about lost people and what he thinks about them is to provide us with those answers. What does it mean to be lost and what does it mean to be found by God? And so Jesus goes into a story. Jesus was a master storyteller. Master storyteller. And as he tells this story, it's as if he's opening this play, this scene, this theater drama, like a first act. The story is one of the most famous stories ever told. It's known as the prodigal son, but it's a story about two different sons and a father. And it starts with a speech. It tells us that there is the younger son, and the younger son went to his father, and he said, I want my share of your estate now before you die. To us, maybe that just sounds like an advanced paycheck, but to the crowd, the original audience that Jesus is speaking to, they're shocked. They're entirely blown away by this. It was common for a son, for a child, to receive the inheritance from their father, but only when the father died. See, back in those days, if there were two sons, right, there would be an inheritance to be given. And two-thirds of the inheritance would go to the older son. The older son, the older sibling, just simply kind of had that, uh, that status in the family. But then the third remaining would go to the younger son. And so the son is telling the father at this moment, let's pretend like you're dead. I don't think you're ever going to die. I'm more interested in your stuff than I'm interested in you. This would have been shocking to the ancient Middle Eastern culture that Jesus was talking to. You don't say that. Now, equally shocking would have been the father's response. In those days, it would have been very appropriate for the father to drive that son out of the family with verbal, if not physical, abuse. You want what? You've said what? But instead, it tells us that the father gives the inheritance to the son. In order to do that, the father would have had to sell off a portion of his land. It says that the father sold off, or gave, gave that part of the wealth to the son, but the word for wealth there is bios, which means the entirety of his life. And your land was your life. Your land was your status. Your land was the amount of power you had in your community. And so the son is saying, I want you to humiliate yourself. I want you to sell part of yourself. I want you to give up your standing in this community because I want your stuff. I don't want you. And shockingly, the father says, okay. He would have gone off. He would have sold a portion of the land and he would have given the inheritance to the son. Shocking. To everyone. Both the sinners and tax collectors and the Pharisees. It tells us that the son goes off and things don't go very well for him and says that he squanders the money. Everything goes away. He has nothing left. It says finally he comes to his senses when he's literally in a pig pen. He's sharing food with animals. And he comes up with a speech. He comes to his senses. He wishes he had a time machine. He wishes he could go back in time. I wish I could fix things. I wish I could change everything that I've done. He comes up with this speech. On the next slide, what he says, he says, I'm going to go home to my father. I'm just going to say this. I've sinned. I'm no longer worthy of being called your son. It's simple and it's profound. He misses home. And he's realizing that home is 
much more than a place, but a relationship, right? But he's also come to this place of realization, I don't deserve to be in my father's family anymore. I don't belong there. He wishes he could go back and change things, but instead he'll just go and he'll beg his father to be a servant. You ever wish that you could go back and change things and now you're afraid to face the consequence? When I had first gotten my driver's license, I was 16 years old, it was in the summer, and my parents were always warning me, like, Danny, when you get into a cul-de-sac, when you get into a neighborhood, make sure you're driving slow. Drive slow. Drive slow when you're, turn down the music and drive slow. One day as I'm driving home, I am not driving slow. I have not turned down the music, and as I'm rushing into the driveway, my car comes to a sudden stop much earlier than I had anticipated. We had this like little area on the side of the garage where I could park my car, but my car stopped before then. You see, I, I, I drove my car into the house. And I mean, I literally drove my car into the house. And I'm freaking out. And I'm like, no, no, maybe I just skimmed it, right? No, I get outside and I see that my car is actually pinned against the house. Wood has fallen on the ground. I so badly wish that I had a time machine that I could just go back and live the life that I was supposed to live as my parents' child just to listen to them, right? And now I'm like, oh man, I was so close to home but I've never felt farther from home because that was the longest walk down the stairs into the basement to tell my parents what I'd done in my life. And as I'm going down there, I'm like just preparing a speech. I'm like, oh, oh, oh. I wish I could go back and change things. But instead I prepare a speech in my mind. You know, maybe, maybe if I just say the right things, they'll let me drive in 10 years from now. Maybe they won't make me walk to school. It was terrifying. I wish I could just go back. But of course, there was no place to go but forward, and that's what this son is feeling. There's no place to go but forward. So he walks home. He's preparing this speech in his mind. He says, I don't even want to be your son. I don't even want to live on your property. Just hire me as a helper. Someone who would live off-site and just come on, and you don't even have to pay me. I'll earn my way back into the family. And this is the part where the Pharisees are starting to lick their chops, right? They're excited. Yeah, it's time for the boy to suffer. But Jesus surprises everyone again. On the next slide, it, it tells us, when the child, when the son was still a long way away, his father saw him coming. The father would have had no idea that the son was coming, right? It's not like he had an alert on his phone. It's not like he had his son on Find My Friends. He was waiting. He wanted him. He had a passion for his lost son. As soon as he sees him, it says he's filled with love and compassion. And he runs to his son. Again, this is shocking. This is surprising. Back in those days in Middle Eastern ancient culture, a father would not run. A father would not lift up his robe to bare his feet and his ankles and his legs. That's something that patriarchs in those days did not do. Biblical scholars say that this father that Jesus is describing is not behaving like a father. He is behaving like a mother. Running to the child. It wasn't normal for those days. And I know that there are a lot of people today who have a hard time seeing God as a father. First off, let me tell you this. The Bible also describes God as a mother many times throughout the Old Testament. But Jesus is saying this, any idea that you've had about God as your father, any idea that you've had about relating to God as your father, it's upside down. 
Your father might have hated you, but my father loves you. Your father might have hurt you, but my father loves you and will help you and will heal you. My father's not like your father. This father is exactly who you need him to be. Shocking everyone. Son finally gets to the father and the son says, quick, quick, we need to celebrate with a feast. My son, he was lost, but now he's found. And so a party begins. He gives his son all of the supplies. The son was gone, now he's back. He gives him a space back at the table. He clothes his son in the fancy cloak that they have, the robe, the royal robe that the family has. He puts it on him. He puts a signet ring on the son's finger. Signet ring, it was a big deal. It meant a stamp of approval. They didn't sign contracts back then, but each family had a signet ring and they would stamp it with the ring. And so it meant, I approve of this. So when the father puts the signet ring on the son, he says, I approve of you. The son wanted to earn his way back, but the father said, I will bring you back. He gives him the robe. He gives him the ring. It says that he kills the fattened calf. It's time for a party. It's time to celebrate. It was time to celebrate when the sheep was found. It was time to celebrate when the coin was found. It was time to celebrate when the son came home. Ever been shocked by the look of approval? You know what the coolest thing was? When I went downstairs and I told my parents about what happened, they were like, okay, we got to see this, right? So they come outside, my dad looks, my mom looks, and they both go, you drove your car into our house. Like, yeah, we had to work at it and fix it. Yeah, they told me, you can't ever do that again. But they still gave me their stamp of approval. Nothing changed the fact that I was their child. Nothing. And so it seems like this story's got a nice, happy ending, but the story's not over yet. Jesus sees this master storyteller, and so he opens up a second act. And the second act talks about another brother. See, there's an older brother who's outside. He hasn't heard yet about the son coming home. He knows his little brother's gone out and gotten lost, and I wonder what he thinks about his brother. You know, I think that we hear this story, and we oftentimes just think about the first act, and we think it's sentimental and beautiful, and everybody's wiping tears from their eyes. But then we take a look at the older brother. This older brother, this condescending older brother, it says he's angry about his brother going in. He's angry about his brother having a party thrown for him, and he will not go inside. This father comes out, and he tries to beg with his son, please come inside. The text tells us that he approaches his father, and he says, look. In the original Greek of, uh, that's written in the Bible, it says, look. He says, look. He won't even call him Father. Just look, you. I've been your son, he says. I never left. I've obeyed everything. I've always worked. And this son of yours, he calls him a lover of prostitutes. He squandered all of his money on the worst things you can do. You give him the fattened calf. I've been with you this whole time. You didn't even give me a goat to throw a party with my friends, he says. What a whiner. He's angry. 
You know, there are a lot of younger brothers out there, right? And it's easy to identify with the younger brothers sometimes. We go out, try to find ourselves. We're not so interested in God. We're interested in the stuff. And then one day, we believe that it's time to go home. But then there are also older brothers. Perhaps we can relate to older brothers too. The older brother who's angry. You know, it's interesting, the younger brother, he was lost by doing a lot of bad things. He was lost by disobeying. But the older brother, he's lost too. The younger brother said, I don't want you, dad. I want your stuff. And the older brother says, I did everything right, dad, so give me your stuff. Sounds familiar, right? One brother tried to control everything by disobeying, and now the other brother reveals that he's tried to control everything just simply by obeying. And both end up in the same place. Alienated from home. Lost. And Jesus is looking out at this audience of people, religious people, rule followers, and sinners, rule breakers, right? He says, for some of you, it's self-discovery, right? I'm going to go out, and I'm going to find myself, and I'm going to tell myself who I am, or I'm going to let others tell me who I am. I'm going to control my circumstances to get the stuff. And then on the other side, there's the moral conformity, the Pharisees, the older brother type people. And it's, I'm going to control the stuff by obeying. I'm going to manipulate the system. And these people are always angry. They're always mad. Because life's never fair for them. I've been climbing the ladder. Why do people at the bottom get the same treatment from God that I get? What? He's not so interested in the father. He's interested in the stuff. As it turns out, you can get just as lost on morality and religion as you can on immorality and irreligion. Both are lost. Both need a way home. See, there's a new definition of loss that Jesus gives us. I can find myself and I can save myself. On one side, you've got the younger brother. I can find myself. I can find what I've always been looking for if I just leave. And then you've got the older brother. I can save myself. I've done everything right. And so now you owe me. And maybe a lot of us can relate to the older brother. And if you find yourself in your faith saying, God, I've listened to you, I've obeyed you, I've gone to church, I've prayed, I've honored Christ, and so now you owe me. Jesus might be our example, he might be our boss, but he's not our savior. Just trying to do the right things to get the things. Both end up lost. And right and when we're on the edge of our seats, we're wondering, so what's going to happen? Is, 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 is the son going to come in? Is he going to be back a part of the family? You see, Jesus, he left them on this like crazy cliffhanger. Maybe something that we don't necessarily pick up on in the English, but in the Greek it says, the, the, the older son looks at the father, he says, look, you, he won't call him father. 
We're on the edge of our seats. Is he going to come back into the family? Is he going to identify as a child of the father again? Is he going to do it? Is everything going to end fine? You see, it mattered. It mattered that he had alienated himself from the family. It mattered to Jesus that he had alienated himself from the family. It mattered to Jesus that he had now labeled himself as fatherless. Jesus in this story is comparing God to a perfect parent. And that meant a lot to Jesus. In the Old Testament, I know that a lot of times today we think of God and we, we, we address God as father, right? We address God as like this parent. But in the Old Testament, before Jesus lived, people didn't do that. You weren't supposed to approach God with that kind of intimacy. God was this far off distant figure and we had to climb ladders to get to him. But Jesus now in his life, anytime that he talks to God, he calls him father every single time but once. Calling God father meant a lot to Jesus. And so these people, the audience that's listening to him, what's going to happen? Is he going to come back into the family? What's going to happen? And Jesus just ends the story. Why would this master storyteller just end the story? Why wouldn't he finish it? Because every single one of us who's listening to this, we can relate to the story. We're in the story. Some of us are younger brothers. Some of us are older brothers. Some of us are younger sisters. Some of us are older sisters. We're in this story. You know, lots of good stories, they have the first act. There's the buildup, right? There's the information. Then there's the second act. It's the conflict. And then the third act, it's the resolution. And this master storyteller, Jesus, who tells stories to prove his points, seems to leave out the third act, the most important part, the resolution. Maybe it's an invitation. Do you see yourself in the story? tells the story about the lost sheep. Someone goes out and finds the sheep. He tells the story about the lost coin. Someone goes and finds the lost coin. They bring the coin back. They bring the sheep back. But what about the brother? This younger brother, no one went out to find him. No one cared that he was gone other than the father. No one was willing to pay a cost to go get him. And you ask that audience that's listening to Jesus that day, who should have done it? Who should have been the shepherd for the younger brother? Who should have been the woman seeking the coin for the younger brother? And again, in ancient Middle Eastern culture, everyone would have easily known the answer to that question. It's the older brother. The older brother's job is to keep the estate together. The older brother's job is to keep the family together. The older brother's job is when someone gets lost, it does not matter the cost. The older brother will pay anything, including his entire inheritance, to make sure that the family stays together. And the younger brother desperately needed a true older sibling, but he got a Pharisee. He got a condescending Pharisee. Humanity needs a true older sibling. God didn't give us a Pharisee. 
He gave us his son. Who did earn everything, right? He perfectly obeyed God. He never sinned. He earned the royal robe, the signet ring, the fattened calf. But he gave it to us. Jesus calls God Father every single time he talks to God, except once. On the cross, he simply says, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because Jesus was not being treated like a child. He went to a place. He fought a fight. And they did not give him a royal robe. They stripped him down. They did not give him a fattened calf. They teased him with vinegar. They didn't put a signet ring on his finger. They put a crown of thorns on his head. He gave up his inheritance for us. You get the royal robe. You get the wonderful meal. You get the signet ring because Jesus gave it to you. Because that's what it meant for him to bring the family together. To come eat, to come sit at the table. You know, in that story, there's a party and it talks about a feast taking place at the party. Why? Because at a feast, at a meal, you're getting everything that you need. Your body's being restored with the nutrition that it needs. Your heart is being restored with the company and the family that it needs. Perhaps that's why the Pharisees were so appalled by the fact that Jesus was eating with sinners, with lost people. Jesus says, you don't have to be lost anymore. You don't have to be lost anymore. Instead, you can be found. And here's the definition of found. Found means to be in God's love and to be secure in Christ. I don't have to find myself. God's love has found me. I don't have to save myself. I'm already secure in what Christ has done for me. I am accepted. I can wear the signet ring. Man, what if we walked around with that kind of confidence? Not arrogance, but confidence. Humble confidence to know that we are accepted at home. Confidence is not talking yourself up. Confidence is not saying, I have to go find myself and then I'll feel good. Confidence is not saying, I can save myself. Look at me. Confidence is saying, I'm okay. I don't have to be mad when somebody else gets a seat. be found is to be home. So my question for you is, what are you, what are you really living for? Where are you finding your ultimate significance? 
If it's not Christ, if it's not God, it might be a good thing. But it will never be home. And when you ask it to, it, it won't be able to hold you. It won't be able to bear your soul. But home is the place where you're called to be. Home is the person you've been called to. And he's inviting you to join him. When I first moved to Ames, I lived by myself for three years um, before I got married. And uh, I had... I had you know, the church is awesome to me. Like friends that are awesome. But you go home and you're just alone. And in my apartment, I didn't, I didn't feel home. It's where I lived. But you know what I was missing? I was, I was missing the face to look back at me, the, the acceptance, right? Who, who's that person for you? Can I tell you that God wants to be that for you? You can bear yourself in front of him. You don't have to find yourself. He can find you. You don't have to save yourself. He saves you. So I had like this reminder of, of home in my apartment though and it always came like in the form of cereal and I know that that sounds weird but it's because when I was a kid growing up every single morning, every single morning I'd come downstairs and I'd have like a blanket draped around my shoulders. Anybody else do that? You're like, well, oh, oh, you know, you're walking downstairs and I'd sit at the counter, right? And there'd be a chair there for me and I'd just sit, plop. And then my mom would be on the other side and by her good grace, she wouldn't say, oh, get a hold of yourself. She'd be like, all right, what do you want today? Cheerios. Let's be honest, lucky charms. <laughs> she'd pour it and she'd slide it toward me. And I didn't realize the significance of what was happening then just to be welcomed from the beginning of my day, not after I had accomplished something in the day, from the beginning of my day. And so, I, like, I, like, everybody's got a little bit of sentiment in them. And so for me, like, it's, when I eat cereal, I think of my mom because I think of all the mornings. And so when I'd eat cereal when I was living by myself, I just, you know, I felt kind of home. You don't have to wait three years. Home is calling you now. I want to invite you just to close your eyes for a moment. And I want you to see a face. Um, maybe not one that you've seen before, but a face of acceptance and a face of approval. And a face of love. And when you see this approval and this acceptance and this love and this home, you see Christ. 
Christ says, I, I am the bread of life. He gives us himself for our nourishment, for our food. He pours himself out for us. He says, eat. Take what your soul needs. Are you sure I don't have to go out and do something today? No, start your day with this. And just talk to God. He knows what's on your heart. Just talk to God. God, sometimes... I'm worried about what you'll find out about me. I'm concerned that your love for me is dependent on my performance. But you've reminded me you don't love me for what I do. You love me because you love me. I don't have to be concerned about what you will find because you've already found me. You love me because you love me. Because you love me. Because you love me. Because that's who you are. I don't have to get better for you to love me better. If I got better, you couldn't love me any better than you already love me. There's nothing I could do that would make you love me less. And there's nothing I could do that would make you love me more. Because you love me because you love me. I don't have to be afraid. Lord, your love fights my fear. Your love fights the fear inside of me. Your love fights the fear that surrounds me. Your love damages the fear. And you tell me that your perfect love casts out all fear. And so, Lord, I come before you today and I say, welcome me home. I have the audacity to say, embrace me, hug me, welcome me, put the robe on my shoulders, put the ring on my finger, feed me, Lord. Not because of what I've done. Not because I found myself on some journey. Not because I climbed a ladder and I saved myself from what's below. But because you decided you wanted to be my father. So you sent me a brother. You sent me yourself and your son, Jesus Christ. And you love me. I don't have to be afraid about what you might find in me. I can be overwhelmed by the love you've put in me. Thank you, God. I am your child. I'm coming home. Amen. Let's go ahead and stand and sing.